This is Clutch Fans. And by the way, shout out to the Clutch fans. You're listening to the Clutch Fans Podcast, an open conversation for Houston Rockets diehards. Houston Rockets is unbeatable. <laughs> I'm ready to get on Clutch fans. Now, here's your host. The man who would have drafted Harold Miner over Robert Ory, Dave Hardesty. I am uh, stoked to have with me as a guest today someone that uh, I've been sitting next to at every Houston Rockets home game now for the past, I guess, four seasons. Um, he's probably sick of my questions by now. Uh, he's uh, spent nearly 10 years with the Houston Chronicle uh, covering sports and spent a few years covering the Rockets at Fox Sports Houston. Uh, he writes today for the Sports Exchange and does really some outstanding analytical work uh, on the Rockets that you can read at Culture Map. Uh, he's honestly one of the most knowledgeable people I've met about sports in general uh, and a pretty good foodie as well, and that's uh, Mr. M.K. Bauer. How are you doing, M.K.? Dave, I am fantastic, and it's all about the food post-game. I wish people understood how important <laughs> those food trips post-game are to our well-being and our good, our good overall health. Absolutely. I mean, M.K. and I uh, usually uh, – he has taught me a few things that uh, Jack in the Box is not um, <laughs> <laughs> fine food and things of that nature. So I've been learning a lot about some great places downtown. Um, you know, I want to jump right here in into the Rockets. Um, really a lot going on. Fans quite excited about the team. We just saw a thrilling game, uh, great on some levels, um, kind of disgusting on others. But that was the Wizards game on Wednesday night. And uh, I want to talk to you about what happened here in the finish. I mean, the Rockets had a season-high 26 turnovers in the game. The Wizards hit 16 threes, were 50% from downtown. I have no idea how they ended up winning that game. What were your thoughts overall on how they pulled out this seventh straight win? I, th- I think there were two ways to look at it. You know, First of all, you know, we've seen this act before with this team to where they get a big lead and they can't hold it. And a lot of times they've lost leads and lost games in that manner. And I think it was frustrating for people who've observed this talent and thought that they need to figure out a way to mature and grow. So in one sense, I thought, Last night was emblematic of growth. They blew the 19-point lead in, in strange circumstantial fashion. I think, obviously, you know, Trevor Ariza hitting all those threes was an outlier performance for him, and you don't see those things happen very often. But the fact that the Rockets fell behind, came back and won the game by executing well down the stretch, obviously the two plays that we debated at length last night afterwards with James Harden to get the free throw and then get the basket with seven cents of a second left. And I thought their defense late was, was good enough to get the job done. To me, that shows so much about where they've come or how far they've come as a unit, as a team that's gotten better, that's gotten healthier, which is key to the seven game winning streak and just kind of overall figuring some things about, about who they are and how they should play down the stretch in certain situations. So yeah, it was frustrating to watch a team get up by 19 points late in the third quarter, and then to be behind in the fourth quarter. But at least they figured out a way to win that game, whereas in the past, I think they would have completely collapsed and, and, and not gotten the job done. You know, that's an optimistic view. I like that. I I agree with you that, um, you know, it was a contrast to what McHale ran, for example, against Memphis, where he, you know, I think the, the final two plays had Chandler Parsons try to create. And I thought it was nice that he, you know, with four seconds left, went to James Harden. I mean, that's, you know, in my opinion, where you make your money there down the stretch. 
Um, I, I do look at the, you know, I've watched the last few minutes a few different times. I keep looking at that John Wall 17-footer with about 35 seconds left, just wide open off of a screen and, and missed it. And I'm thinking he makes that shot that, you know, the Rockets likely lose this game. They'd be down four at that point. But uh, I'm I'm happy the way it turned out. I think the Trevor Ariza foul was, was just mind-blowing because I think even though Harden sold it, um, Ariza just seemed – I mean, he just seemed like he was playing like almost football there. Like he was just driving into Harden. He was not going to going to let up. And I just thought that was really on his part a crazy play because there's, there's just so much to, to risk at that point in the game. Yeah, there's so much to that, though. And we've belabored, you and I, you know, the Rockets' poor three-point shooting this season. And I thought last night that play in particular you're referring to is born out of the fact that Harden was three for six on threes last night. And it, it seemed to me that Ariza was, was hell-bent to make sure that Harden did not get a clean look, a clean catch, and a clean look from behind the arc on that first play because obviously the Rockets were down by two at that stage. So I think some of his his performance in that moment in the micro view was that he was being overly aggressive to make sure Harden didn't get a good look because Harden had shot the ball well from the perimeter last night. And that's the one thing that's missing with this team right now is that they still are not a very good three-point shooting team, even as Dwight Howard has played very well of late, particularly during a seven-game stretch. You would think that at some point, the perimeter shooting will catch up with what's going on from that part of the of, of the game. So I thought that play was emblematic of, of everything that's kind of going on last time with James Harden playing well, with him shooting well, and with the Wizards really pressed to make sure he didn't get a good look. Yeah, you know, and it's interesting you bring up the three-point shooting. I, uh, we're going to talk about the trade deadline here as well uh, coming up, but uh, that's, that's something I just don't know how they, they resolve. I mean, Chandler Parsons is their best three-point shooter. They've had to uh, basically bench Aaron Brooks now with Beverly and, and Lynn both healthy. Uh, he he was their best three point shooter. So whether we see them add a guy who can knock down threes or not, we don't know. But um, that's one one thing right there. If they can add a, a rotation piece that can is a forty percent three point shooter, I, I just think that would have a, a huge impact on this team. That's one one thing that they've been missing because you you see with Harden's creative ability and with Dwight's uh, post presence that three point shooters can just thrive here. They just haven't had much success this year. But I think it gets back to the inside-out game. And, you know, we, we wanted this to manifest. I think that was the point of them signing the White Howard in the offseason is to provide some sort of balance to what they want to do offensively because they were so dependent upon three-point shooting last year, and obviously they were very good at it. So here's what's, what's interesting to me. During the seven-game winning streak, they're averaging 109 points per game. They're plus 8.9 points per game over the opposition, and their effective field goal percentage is 56.3%, which would lead the league. So even though their three-point shooting has not been exemplary during this stretch of play, their overall efficiency offensively has been exemplary because Dwight Howard is shooting 60% on the interior. And because that opens up at least some opportunities for guys to get clean looks and better looks, and I think it's allowed them to be a little bit more efficient in terms of how they run their offense, the rim attacks, the open looks, the, the free throw rate, all those things have kind of come into play during a seven-game winning streak. And you got to think, they've scored 100 points now, six consecutive games. since the second longest streak of 100-point games this season. All the things are kind of falling into place with health and with them relying more on Dwight Howard providing balance to their offense. And I think to an extent, a, a small extent maybe, but to an extent, it mitigates their need for exceptional three-point shooting. They just need to be league average. Interesting. So those numbers you cited are from the last seven games Yes. Okay. That's that's interesting. You know, I got to tell you, I, I look at this, and obviously, you know, there were some great wins in there: Spurs, Mavericks, uh, and there were a few, you know, obviously, and the Suns as well. But uh, you know, Cavs, Bucks. I guess it balances out. Uh, Wizards lot the other night. Um, 
But I look at this stretch and, and Harden and Howard averaging just over 50 points during that stretch. I, I think to me, that's what jumps out most of all is that Dwight Howard is getting going. Now there were a few games in there where he was single covered and he just, he just dominated. But I think, uh, that's what I've seen the most growth in the Rockets from beginning to, to now is that they couldn't get him the ball in the post. They re- struggled mightily, uh, throwing the oops. And now we're seeing them connect with Dwight. I think they're just, there's more chemistry with Dwight now, how to get him the ball. Uh, and I think he's, played extremely well. It is a small sample size, but it's the season-high seven-game winning streak, and I think that's the most promising thing to me moving forward. And that's what makes him dangerous, because for a while, it seemed like James Harden was the only guy that could get Dwight Howard in alley But last night, we saw Chandler Parsons get him a couple. We've seen um, Jeremy Lin get better at that, and, and his passing to Howard in particular has been very suspect in the course of the season. So I think overall, you're seeing guys get develop that growth develop that cohesion, and understand a little bit more about where to get the, get the white the ball in an effective position offensively, and that's why you've seen this uptick in production for him. If you're going to get 25 and 12 out of Dwight every night with him shooting 60% from the floor and 65.6% from the line, yeah. I don't think you can ask any more of him, really, at this stage, considering their narrative coming into the season that he, he's on a decline and he'll never be the same physically. And I think we've seen enough of him during this stretch to understand that he's playing 34.4 minutes per game, which seems like a lot, but really it's the second lowest amount per game in his career since his rookie season, and that he's he's been so efficient of late in terms of how he attacks teams, as you reference, even single coverage or passing out of the double team, that I think the overall offense has just gotten better. The one thing he needs to clean up, obviously, is the turnovers. I think he had seven last night. That's a problem. But they're trusting him more with orchestrating the offense from the block and I think it just opens up a world of possibilities for what they can do offensively, something they couldn't do last year with Omer Ajik, who scored obviously primarily on catches and dunks and, and finishes um, after offensive rebounds. I, I just think where they're going right now offensively, they're just scratching the surface of how good they can be as long as they remain healthy and as long as they keep Dwight Howard actively involved. Yeah, and you know, that's uh, something I can vouch for that you've always been on that bus where saying, hey, Dwight Howard's offensive rate hasn't changed. I mean, that he's he's still the same player. Uh, and, you know, I think you've really done a good job destroying that narrative that he's on the decline. Uh, you know, I um, I look at this team now. I mean, they're 36 and 17. This is the second best record in franchise history for the Rockets, uh, trailing only the pace set by the 93-94 title team. Um, with Wednesday's win and Portland's loss, uh, they're now the third best team in the West, at least tied with Portland. Um they're just two games back of the Spurs, which to me is incredible. I mean, the Spurs are, are considered a contender. The Rockets are not even mentioned as contenders this year. Um, that's usually reserved for Miami, Indiana, Oklahoma City, and some people include the Spurs as well. Is that fair? I mean, how high, in your opinion, is this team's ceiling this year? The schedule is going to get tougher, but but is this uh, this team thrusting itself into that contender picture? I think we have to seriously consider them. I mean, they're 5-5. Five and five against the top four teams in the West, excluding themselves, obviously, Oklahoma City, San Antonio, the Clippers, and Portland. They're 3-0 against the Spurs and only two games back of the Spurs, a team with some serious health issues. They already have the tiebreaker against San Antonio, so really all they have to do is tie San Antonio to win a division. And then you're maybe talking about the second overall seed. I think Portland is going to come back and continue to decline. Um, they're just too poor defensively to really remain in the race for the top overall seed. And obviously, I think the Clippers are the one team that, is in the mix for the second seed behind Oklahoma City. I think Oklahoma City is going to run away with this, the West and win it ultimately. And I, I, I do have concerns that the Rockets don't match up very well at all with the Clippers simply because Chris Paul gives them a dimension that the Rockets do not have and cannot counter. But 
there's a distinct possibility this team catches the Spurs. So let's not dismiss that out of hand simply because the Spurs have been marvelous over this last decade and a half. I think it can happen. The fact that they are in third place right now is mind-blowing when you think about how inconsistent they've been through the course of the first 50-plus games of the season with all the bad losses and, and, and the, the puzzling performances that you can't quite wrap your mind around. The seven-game winning streak has put them in position to finish all the stuff they've talked about with gelling and cohesion and camaraderie and chemistry. It was really startling to me to look at that. I, I think I had to stare at the standings for a, while, for a while last night when the Rockets, Houston Rockets Twitter account uh, retweeted that, that, that the standings page. And I'm like, man, they're in third place. I mean, think about that. They're in third place. They're, they're ahead of the Clippers. They're ahead of the Blazers. They're, they're knocking on the door with the Spurs. So to answer your first question, I think they can be considered a contender. I don't think they're going to ever get past Oklahoma City as they're presently constructed, particularly if Russell Westbrook comes back. But if you're talking about where this franchise was a couple of years ago, now you're saying potentially they can get into the playoffs as a two seed or a three seed. Potentially they can get into the Western Conference Finals. That's a win. I, I don't think anybody expects them to play for a championship this year, but I think that the expectation is to win at least one series to contend in the second round and maybe push into the third. I think that, that that's just, that's definitely in play here. And if those things happen, uh, it, it's a sign of, of growth, and it's a sign that, that fans should be excited as you head into the offseason. Yeah, I think you just said exactly what I wanted to, to say as well because I think – there's a, there's a very clear line with the Rockets. A first-round playoff exit would be a massive disappointment. And somebody is going to be massively disappointed. There are five teams in the West right now where there's sort of this grouping that are uh, you know, putting themselves ahead of the, the rest of the West. And, and the West in general is loaded. I mean, Golden State right now I think is the eighth seed, and, and that's ridiculous. So, uh, But I think those, those five teams, you, know, you look at uh, OKC, uh, Houston, uh, Portland, San Antonio, and the Clippers, someone's going to walk away with that first-round playoff exit. So you look at Houston, that would be a disappointment, but a, a loss in the second round is probably what is expected. Making it to the West Finals would exceed expectations. So, um, And of those five teams, you mentioned it, um, You know they've had success against the Spurs. They're 5-1 and one against two of them, the Blazers and Spurs, 0-4 oh against uh, the other two, Clippers and Thunder. But it's, it's interesting. If you look at the Thunder, the Rockets have not face the Thunder this year. In other words, in both of those games, they've been without Beverly and Oshik. I mean, that, that's those are key uh, players that you want to at least be able to judge the Rockets against the Thunder, that you want to be able to have those guys. Memphis could give Houston problems. Um, so, so much of, of their success in the playoffs will be based on that, that first matchup they get. But this is the most lopsided I think I've ever seen the NBA. I mean, there are 12 teams, all but three in this Western Conference, that would qualify as East playoff teams. There are four uh, teams in the Eastern Conference right now that are above 500, which is just just crazy. Toronto and Chicago are are third and fourth. It's just it blows my mind. So I I look at this as you know there's going to be no easy matchups whatsoever for the Rockets in the West. But I, I think that they now for the first time uh, might exceed expectations. I think that they have a good chance of of possibly making the Western Conference Finals. Well, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself, but it clearly is going to be about matchups. And and at this stage, as you referenced, with the way things are shaking out, you may want to avoid that 4-5 because that's <laughs> there because you may end up facing the Clippers or Portland in the first round. And I think the Rockets match up very well with Portland. But still, anytime you're talking about a team that, that leads the league in, in offensive efficiency, um, it's, it's dangerous. So you want to make sure that you're in a position to where as good as Dallas can be offensively, as good as Golden State can be offensively, and as good as Memphis can be defensively, I would much rather take my chances with those teams than the Clippers or the Blazers in the first round. So this gets back to the the, the, the point of the discussion of they're number three overall, and they're probably ahead of schedule in terms of seeding. 
you may want to stay there. Try to find a way to, to finish third or better. Try to find a way to win a division and maybe finish second. And I think that it serves you quite well at this stage and avoiding one of those five power, the four power teams that are remaining in the West. And I think also to your point that the Eastern Conference is going to be, it's not going to be worth watching until you get to the finals when it's Miami and Indiana. Yeah, no doubt. You know, I want to talk to you about Ashik. Uh, mentioned him. I think this is probably one of the most overlooked injuries in the league. And I think it's, you know, clear why. I mean, he's just a quote unquote backup center for this team. Uh, but I think the Rockets are often analyzed as a team that is playing complete, that what we've seen um, is what you'll get because their core guys, uh, you know, Harden, Howard, Parsons have mostly been healthy. Uh, but this team was hurting when Dwight Howard got into foul trouble. And whether it's, you know, on the floor or as a trade piece, I mean, the Rockets need a resolution on Omer Ashik to, to happen. I think that's why people look forward to February 20th so much because, you know, we'll have an idea of what this team will be moving forward uh, towards the playoffs. But what have you seen from Ashik? How important of a addition, I should say, is this to have him back? It's interesting because you, you, you recognize the need for his rebounding and his defense. And there was one point last night where he and, and Demo were on the floor together. And it was just one possession, but boy, they just locked down defensively in the paint against the Wizards' bigs, and I'm like, that's it. You know, that's exactly what you need out of him, to make sure that when Dwight leaves the game, the, the the middle of the lane doesn't just become a sieve for the Rockets defensively, that you have somebody back there that you can rely upon to defend, to protect the rim, to rebound. And and I think Omer still gives you that, even though at this point he's only averaging just another 11 minutes in three games since he's returned. Look at this, Dave. Last year, his total rebounding rate was 22.0%. Right now, it's 21.0%. So he's played 20 games. He's only started eight of them. But even at this stage, with all that's going on with his injuries, with his minutes, with his petulance, and uh, the narrative around that, he's still averaging roughly the same rebound rate this year that he did last year. And can you so, explain that for people, meaning that's how many rebounds he gets? In- while he's on the floor. He's getting 21% of the, re- the available rebounds while he's on the floor. And last year, he was at 22%. So essentially, it's no change. And that's pretty remarkable considering – uh, the fluctuation in his game and in his minutes and everything else this season. So if he can still be that guy, if he can still give you 20-plus percent rebounding rate every game, if he can still give you effort defensively, at least protecting the rim and guarding a big and coming over on the help side with, with defense, I think that makes him a viable contributor to the team. Now, granted, will his attitude be in check if he's still yeah. here after the trade deadline? That, that's, that's a variable none of us know. And he's kind of played himself out of being a valuable trade piece by being hurt for two months whatever the situation was there. So that's sticky, and that probably is the only remaining sticky point for this roster moving forward outside of maybe their acquisition of a wing score at the trade deadline. What's going to happen with Omar Ashik? But I think if he can fly right and be a contributor, then he gives them what they need as a guy that can fill the gap when Dwight Howard's on the bench and you don't lose very much defensively. And offensively, you lose a lot. He was dropping passes last night. Harden tried to feed him an alley-oop. He, he fumbled as he was going up toward the rim. And it, it just it makes it start in terms of understanding how different he is offensively from Dwight Howard. But he could be a lot defensively for you, and he could be a lot on the glass, and I think they need that right now. And having that, I think it, it shifts their focus in terms of what they're looking for as a trade deadline. And, you know, Omer is not the uh, only international seven-footer this team has that's been unhappy with uh, playing time and, and his situation here in Houston. That's Donatus Motiunas. Uh, in the last three games, coincidentally or not, because Omer Ashik has been back for the last three games, Motiunas has hit 10 of 14 shots. Uh, he's giving up, they're scoring um, almost 10 points a game in, I think, a little under 20 minutes a night in those three. A small sample, but uh, he's played some surprisingly decent defense as well. Are we seeing some signs of growth with, with Demo? 
Uh, I'll give you a bigger sample. He's had 14 consecutive games of double-digit minutes played. During that stretch, he's averaging 7.4 points and 5.2 rebounds, 20 minutes per game, two starts, shooting 51% from the field, 36% from three-point range, 62% from the line. I think we're seeing growth. I, I think it's pretty clear that the more he plays, the more confident he becomes, and the more confidence he becomes, the better he performs. Now, the fouls are still an issue. He's fouling way too much. He, he raises his hands and, and questioning the referees all the time at getting fouls. And maybe right now that's part reputation, and that will lessen over time. But he's played very, very well for this team, and I think he's entrenched himself in this rotation simply because when given the opportunity, he didn't fumble it away. And I think with each game, he shows me a little bit more. Last time, again, the reference at the moment with him and Ashik together, he showed me some defense. He showed me some toughness. He, he's he's done some really good rebounding in spots for this team when he needed it. And he provides just enough perimeter shooting that he's a threat, even when Terrence Jones isn't on the floor. And that's the one thing we didn't think would happen this year when they didn't acquire the quote-unquote stretch forward they needed so desperate. So I love Dima. I, th- I think he's really turned a corner, so to speak. And I think if he keep, continues to develop at this rate, he's going to be a real asset for this team. And then that gets into the whole question of what you do moving forward with those two young guys at that position and with Omer Ashik also clawing up some of the minutes as a big off the bench. Yeah, I sure hope so. You know, I got to say, uh, you know, when when Beverly came back, I was like, okay, Aaron Brooks is, is going out of the rotation. Uh, and when Ashik came back, I said, Demo is coming out of the rotation. You know, Brooks went out. Demo stayed in, and uh, Omri Caspi's minutes have taken the hit, uh, 18, 14, 13, 7, and, and DNP against the Wizards. Uh, you know, con- we, we don't know what's going to happen on February 20th. We may see a trade, and, and conspiracy theorists, you know, may say this is a showcase, you know, you know of Demo. But uh, right now, it, it certainly looks like uh, Moti Yunus maybe is taking over uh, some minutes from Omri Caspi, and we're seeing a little bit less small ball, if you want to call it that, and, uh, you know, more playing with Demo. It's going to put a lot of stress if, if they go away from the small ball on Parsons and on Harden defensively. And, and God knows we don't need any more stress on Harden defensively. <laughs> but I think that's, I agree with you. I think that's the direction they're moving because they have such versatility with their bigs now uh, with what Terrence Jones can do, putting the ball on the floor, playing defense, what Demo can do as a perimeter shooter and as a crafty guy in a lane around the basket. And just the effort level from both of those guys, it, it's a plus. And when you didn't have much of that at all last year, and now you have it in abundance, including Ashik's defense and his rebounding ability, uh, I think you found a way to milk it. And, yeah, it's going to be problematic against certain teams in the West because they're going to go small. But I think if you can overwhelm teams with your size, and then you still have the perimeter weaponry in Harden, in Parsons, in Lynn, and to an extent Patrick Beverly, and if, if Caspi and, and Garcia can never figure it out with their three-point shooting, then, I, again, you're talking about a rotation that's viable. You're talking about a, an eight, nine-man group that can serve you very well in the postseason, and you don't have to need anything at the trade deadline. Well, they still look, absolutely. Um, we've talked a lot at, at Rockets games about it'd be nice to have a, a wing score off of the bench, a guy with some sort of versatility that can yeah. a little bit of defense, a guy that can attack the rim, not necessarily just shoot threes. I think they got plenty of that. But a guy who can maybe attack the rim off of the bench in coordination with Jeremy Lin. But right now, with the way Demo has developed, I think it's rounded out this roster in a way that none of us anticipated coming into the season. Yeah, you know, Daryl Morey said recently on a, a radio uh, interview said that he, you know, he may be bluffing, but said that he wanted to stick with this team, felt good about it, uh, and uh, I don't know, we'll see it, we'll see what ends up happening there. I think we have to talk about before we jump into the trade deadline, um, we have to talk about the the Lynn Beverly starting discussion because pretty much it's mandated into our podcast law. We have to discuss this. I mean, is it even a debate any longer in your opinion? Which player should be starting in your view? 
It's not a debate. It's it's Patrick Beverly simply because the numbers suggest that he's a better fit, not a better player, which is what a lot of people seem to misconstrue here. He's a better fit with the other four guys on that starting unit. The 11.6 net rating to 4.6 for Jeremy Lin. The, the better um, turnover assist ratio because they don't turn the ball nearly over as much with Patrick Beverly on the court as you do with Jeremy Lin. I mean, everything, if you flush it out, it makes perfect sense for Beverly to start. And again, this isn't about disrespecting Jeremy Lin. And, and I think Kevin McHale's made this point and no one's listened to it. You know, that's a Hall of Fame player who spent a bulk of his career coming off the bench or a large portion of it yeah. coming off the bench. There's no shame in that if you're still getting the minutes. And Jeremy is still getting 31 minutes a game, which is ample amount of minutes. Here's what's interesting to me. And as I prepared to talk with you tonight, I kind of delved into the numbers because that's what I like to do. You know, Jeremy's turnover rate, his assist rate, all those sort of um, the, the peripherals are better with him coming off the bench than they are with him starting. Now, people may want to dismiss that out of hand because his scoring is down as a bench, as a reserve, as compared to a starter. But when your effective field goal percentage is 52.2 as a reserve and 52.4 as a starter, that means your shooting is pretty much essentially the same. When your assist rate is 25.1 as a reserve and 22.8 as a starter, that means you're distributing ball better as well as being an aggressive offensive player. When you're turning the ball over at 13.7% ratio as opposed to 15.1 as a starter, that means you're taking care of the ball better. So all the signs point to him playing better as a reserve player and also being a better offensive player, specifically not standing next to James Harden all the time and just standing around and watching. And I don't know why people can't understand that, why they can't grasp it. Uh, Maybe it's a salary. And yeah, that's another argument that he's making too much money to be a bench player, but the way this team is presently constructed, he seems so much better and he's a better fit as a bench player than as a starter. And this is not about him being an inferior player to Patrick Beverly. This is about his role on his team and the way Beverly fits with those other four guys to start. Yeah, and it's it's almost a catch-22 because as he succeeds coming off the bench, people think that he needs to be upgraded to to the starter. And I, I, I 100% agree with you, as you know. I mean, this is just I, I feel – they have got good chemistry right now with the starting unit. I think the the numbers show that they're a more effective unit as a as a five with Beverly in there. And I think uh, one of the I think we're seeing also in a, in a small way a, a difference between advanced stats and and just basic numbers that people look at with Jeremy Lin. I think that people look at points and assists with Lin compared to Beverly, and they say what in the world. And I think turnovers is one of the the most overlooked, I think, uh, aspects here. I mean, when you consider that when a team turns the ball over, they're giving up a little over a point. I think we saw 26 turnovers in the Wizards game turned out into 24 points. Uh, between Harden, Lynn, and Beverly, there have been 11 instances this year where one of them played 30 minutes a game and in a game and didn't turn the ball over, and all 11 times it was by Beverly. And that's because he's a different, completely different player than, than uh, Harden and Lynn. He has different responsibilities. But when you put Harden and Lynn, who are very similar uh, in their attacking style and, and high turnover style, uh, when you put those two guys together, I mean, you're going to have more turnovers. And, and it, it, I just think Beverly complements what Harden does much better. I think when you see Harden, uh, Lynn is such an effective player for this team in the sense that he gives you insurance at the, at the, at the, the point guard. He gives you insurance uh, at the two guard, and he can come in as a six-man spark. He really is playing three roles for this team and, and has played them throughout the year because the, the, the need has arisen with injuries. But uh, I just think that the starting unit they have is the right one. One thing to add, uh, 
the turnover rate with Jeremy Lin starting with the other four guys for the, for that starting unit is 17.0%. With uh, Patrick Beverly is 13.9. That's significant. That that that's four possessions basically um, that you're giving up with Lin amongst the starters as opposed to uh, Patrick Beverly. And with the way the league is now, possessions are very very critical. With the pace the Rockets play, you can't afford to give up on, sorry, three possessions per 100 just on turning the ball over. You have to maximize every opportunity. And I just think they take better care of the ball with, with Beverly out there than they do with Jeremy Lin. But that's the one critical difference. Everything else you can kind of flesh out in terms of rebounding rate and assist rate. But the, the turnover rate is so critical. And it's the one thing about this team that's the weakest. When you look at the four factors, the Rockets are third in the league in effective field goal percentage. They're first in free throw rate. They're 12th in offensive rebounding rate. They're 29th in turnover rate. So that's the one flaw they've shown all season long. And if, if they're going to get that next step up, they got to get better at taking care of the ball. And I think you do that by making sure you keep the unit on the floor, at least the starting unit, intact. Yeah, and I want to dive into the trade deadline. This is what everyone's focused on. It's less than a week away here, February 20th. I think we're setting ourselves up for just – a fascinating, uh, I guess, reveal of what Daryl Morey is going to do because he may do nothing. He may do something small. I, I highly doubt he does nothing. But he has a juggling act here that um, you know people may notice that he has to decide whether he's going to make a large step forward right now for this team, knowing that you, you know, the way you've had Yao Ming and Tracy McGrady and you don't get those opportunities where your stars are are healthy and you can make that run at it. They're 36 and 17, third in the West. He has to decide whether he wants to add a significant piece now or, or some type of helpful piece and possibly put at risk his 2015 status where he's hoping to set himself up for a third star or a third uh, player of a higher caliber, if you will. What do you think we'll see happen here? I mean, obviously we, we don't know what's going to happen, but what do you think uh, type of moves we'll see happen from, from Daryl Morey? Well, I th- definitely think it's a referendum on how he feels about this team. If he doesn't make a play, I think it's pretty clear he thinks that, you know, we'll be good enough next year with growth and maturation. I don't think that anybody, even in your most optimistic view, will look at this team and say this is going this team is going to win the West. A lot of things would have to go right for that to happen. So if he makes a move and gives up some younger players to make that move, I think he thinks that they're one or two players away from winning the West. And he's going to go for it now. And I think you make an excellent point about that. We can't we can't sit back and think or assume that Harden and Howard would be healthy next year. You know, if you think you're close and strike while the iron is hot, yeah, make a move and get her done. And and I think I've been um, maybe naive in assuming that that oh you know they'll they'll be fine. They'll grow and get and get better next year. Well, you don't know what next year has to hold. So if they think they're close and they think of Paul Millsap or Anderson Verjao or Dion Waiters or a Thad Young or all these names that have kind of been banded about. If they think those guys are going to get them over the hump, then I think he'll make that move. And I think they'll prove to everyone how he views his team, that he thinks they're close enough, and he's not going to wait till next year for another year of growth and maturation. He's going to do it right now. So I don't – it's diff, you know what's kind of confused me is that they've completely backed away from the whole Omer Ashik moving thing. So it kind of opens up a world of possibilities with the other names that have been thrown out there. You know, Verjao has been outstanding with his rebounding rate. But, man, he's played only 81 games in the three years prior to this season. He's missed five games this year. So I don't know if I want to hedge my bets on a guy that's 31 years old that has a recent injury history that's that's concerning. Um, Thad Young, I'm not quite sure how he fits with this team if that guy is going to be moved because Philadelphia looks like they're ready to move any and everybody to continue our tanking episode. Um, Deion Waiters, 
has gotten a pretty salty reputation already, even though he's been in the league only a couple of years, even though I think he would be a great asset to the team as yeah, constructor. So it, it, it's just kind of weird to kind of figure out where they're going to go next because they're almost kind of in the middle of, are they really good enough to challenge the Spurs and, and the Thunder and the Clippers in the playoffs? Or should they just keep building and wait till next year when everybody's a year older, a year better, a year wiser, and then strike when next year comes, even though there's no guarantee that next year will ever be the same as this year has been? I look at last year, um, you know, they trade Patrick Patterson for Thomas Robinson. That was clearly a future move. Um, and they were in the middle of a, a playoff a push. So I, to me, I, that's what is going to be fascinating to see is, is Daryl still willing to take a small step back now? Uh, that for something that might set himself up better uh, next year. And I think there's, in many different ways, we're seeing that, not just the 2015 uh, free agency money that they expect to have, but you know Chandler Parsons' contract. They can make him a restricted free agent this summer or unrestricted the next. And, and it's leaning, looking more like it will be unrestricted in the next. Um, a first-round pick. You, know, you and I had a fascinating discussion Wednesday night. Uh, I talked about how Marcus Smart was um, – was uh, in a recent mock draft was dropped down to f- the 14th pick of the draft. And I don't believe he will actually fall that far, but if you consider the Rockets may end up with the 24th pick, I mean, I would think they would move heaven and earth to try to move up 10 spots to take a guy like Marcus smart, a high upside guy. So, you know, a first round pick, for example, is going to have a lot of value, um, at this particular deadline. And is Daryl willing to trade away a guy that he can have on the cheap for four years in the summer, not for this year, um, for a boost in, in this year? And those are the kind of questions that I think Daryl is have to answer right now. And, and it's really intriguing because I think they are close. Uh, you know, I'm dubious on them being better or, or, or winning a series against Oklahoma City or the Clippers in particular, but I think they're close. And if you think that one guy gets you closer, then I think you have to do it because championship windows are not guaranteed. I think we learned that last year with Patrick Beverly, you know, pulling the sniper roll on Russell Wilson. I mean, Russell Westbrook and, and knocking him out of the postseason and changing the fortunes for Oklahoma City. Now they're they're grinding their way back into contention again, but let's be realistic. When they played the Heat two years ago, everyone assumed that was the first of many. Well, they didn't get there last year, and, and Westbrook is hurt again this year, and there's no guarantee in anything. So I think that's kind of my underlying point, and I think that's the point you're making too, that Daryl Moore has to consider all of this, that there's no guarantee. And you may want that asset of, of a young guy you can control for four years, but in the same vein, if you're close enough, then you got to go for it. And, and I think ultimately that's going to be one thing that moves him. How, how close does he think this particular roster is? And will one guy get them closer to the top and get them in position to maybe play for an NBA championship this season? Yeah, and I think you know in the, the past few years, Daryl has been judged against – other moves that happen around the league as far as, oh, this star has was traded or um, this team was able to make this move. Why didn't we make that that move? And now he's going up against the OKCs, the Pacers, and, and the Heat, and the, the moves that those teams make because the Rockets are now, at, you would think, theoretically, an it location, a team that uh, – you know, can can possibly contend. And so if OKC adds Mike Dunleavy, for example, or adds a shooter and the Rockets don't, you know, Daryl's going to be judged or, or uh, possibly looked at it that being a mistake that he let a, a possibility go by. So that's why I think this is going to be a, a great question. He may feel comfortable with this team, but I think if he does nothing, they may look back at this trade deadline and say, hey, you could have added a piece that really would have helped in these playoffs. I think what's interesting is that I wouldn't be surprised at all if the Thunder, the Spurs, and the Clippers didn't make any moves. I think the Clippers could use another big off the bench and support 
of how fabulous Blake Griffin has been this year and even the, the exceptional rebounding that, that DeAndre Jordan has given that team. But I think it wouldn't surprise me at all, really even Portland, to see those top four teams other than the Rockets stand pat. So if that's the case, what does that do to the Rockets thinking? If you're looking at, at the landscape and the four teams you have to contend with to get out of the West are all going to be the same teams moving forward other than Oklahoma City getting Westbrook back, then, then how does that change your view of what you want to do? So, again, Morey has a lot of things to consider. It's probably going to be his most stressful deadline because after <laughs> all the years of working to get to this point of having two superstars, he has them. And now the team has played very, very well. Do you want to risk disrupting the chemistry of this team to add a player for the last 28, 25 games and maybe hope that that player gets you over the hump in the postseason when it still may not be enough and then you've given up something that you really don't like giving up to begin with? Yeah. And I think right now I'm sure what Daryl's trying to do is make a classic Daryl Morey move where he's offering Brewer, uh, Greg Smith, and, and a second-round pick for you know a Dunleavy or somebody that he can use and giving up something that he just that has you know no use for him beyond this year. So I'm sure that's what they're they're exhausting those type of options. If we don't see anything happen, I would suspect that Brewer will probably be waived at some point, especially when you consider there's going to be a few guys I would think float around out there, similar to Aaron Brooks last year, where uh, you know guys who will be waived so they can join a team for a, a playoff run. Um, so I think we may see something like that happen, but. It's going to be, you know, it's always for me, it's like Christmas. I can't wait to see what, what ends up happening, who they end up um, bringing in here. But I, my hope, uh, crossing my fingers, is that they're able to add at least one rotation guy. Yeah, I think I get locked, much more locked into the current roster than you do. I don't view the trade deadline as all that intriguing simply because, it, in my mind, it requires so many more future moves. But that's kind of how it's always been with the Rockets. And maybe now it's different because I think whatever they do now is for the now and not for a future movement like the Thomas Robinson pick uh, trade last year. So uh, I think maybe this time I'm a little bit more intrigued than I've been in the past simply because I think the stakes are much higher in the present than they are in the future for this, this current iteration of the Rockets. Awesome. MK, man, thanks so much for doing this. Uh, you know, I'm uh, heading out to New Orleans, so we'll see how it goes out there with the All-Star game. But uh, well, I mean, we don't even have any home games this month. I mean, this is, this is crazy. I mean, they don't pick back up until until March. But uh, well, I'm sure I'll see you there, and I appreciate you doing this, man. It was uh, great having you on. One recommendation, make sure you eat at the Camilla Grill in New Orleans. Okay, you're gonna to have to send that to me because I I will definitely do this. So these are the kind of uh, things that I need, so I don't don't end up at Chick Fil A. <laughs> we'll do, man. All right, MK. Thanks so much. Take care. 